0: Albion calling you are being calling good evening i'm theodore pilkington rhubarb and you're listening to the arc light program shortly we will be bringing you another of our marvelous slumber time stories this week it's a ripping yarn set under the ocean but before that we are once again delighted to bring you one of the old folk song recordings by Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels. Now, personally speaking, I love to just lose myself in the ambience of these haunting recordings, but we have received many letters asking... A, uh, what? What's that, Mabel? One letter. Right. Just just one letter. Okay. <clears throat> We've received one letter asking us to explain what on earth is going on, which I take to mean tell us more about these wonderful folk songs. And here at Albion Radiophonic Corporation, we are always happy to go the extra mile for our listeners. So today I would like to share with you from the pamphlet that accompanied the original Waxo Spiralograph recordings about the song. We intend to play you." Which in this case was written by the eminent critic, Reverend Treacle Headstock, who writes, The song My Love, or My Lovely in other versions, is a classic folk song in the Eastern Lowlands tradition that can trace its origins back at least 10 generations. It makes use of refrain and counter-refrain to build the longing of the lover as the juxtaposition to the yearning of the loved. Is it a song to a friend, a mother, a romantic dalliance, or a favoured child, or all four at once? Its soaring chorus contains harmonies that are distinctly reminiscent of the Gregorian tradition, but underpinned by a chromatic suspension that tugs emphatically at the heartstrings, just as a departing lover would do. In short, it is nothing less than the very essence of desire. So there you are. I hope that has whetted your appetite for another folk song of Old Albion. Introduced once again by Dame Dilemma Spaniels herself. This woman is wretched and poor. Her song is much the same. Sing now. Okay. I love my gun, I love my cat I don't my guts, I love I love my I my I love a I love my guns I love my stuff, I love my stuff, I I love my I I love lovely I I love myself, I I love my heart, I love my heart, I love my No percussion! I love my lip, I love my lip, I love my lip. Actually, Just stop. I love my heart. Well, I don't know about you, but I for one feel that once you've heard that, it's very hard to unhear it. Now on the Light Programme, it's time for Slumber Time Stories. And this week, it's an exciting tale of a rocket ship heading with all haste to the bottom of the ocean. Read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Part One of... An Aquanaut Misadventure, or Rocket Ship to the Bottom of the Ocean, by Darren Cowan. <gasps> the first view of Sir Grenville Lushthorpe's awesome invention appearing above the horizon was enough to take the breath away. As the lumbering Air Ministry airship made its inexorable way across the broiling East Ocean towards the rendezvous, all passengers found themselves elbowing for space at the forward observation window. An unseemly scrum ensued, which dipped the airship nose alarmingly towards the waves below, and forced the captain to ask them if they wouldn't mind awfully taking turns at the window. Thus chided, the First Lord of the Admiralty Guthbert, pulled rank, and took the first turn. Accompanied by Ellen Hall, the waspish, newly promoted Air Corps Captain, replete with stiff new uniform. Ellen squished her nose right up against the pane, as she struggled to comprehend the massive construction growing ever larger in the gondola window. "'My word!' muttered the First Lord, who was giving no sign of allowing anyone else to take a turn, and had reduced the others to curious bobbing-around motions to try and see past his ample bulk. Ahead of them, in the glistening expanse of water, was an incredible array of no less than 12 decommissioned dreadnought battleships, arranged in two giant pontoons of six craft each. The majority of these hulks had had their superstructure removed, although the outer ones still retained their impressive 20-inch guns, and replaced with an enormous pair of wrought-iron framework towers, with gantries, Cranes, elevators, and service pipes running off the many levels. Suspended between these two lofty edifices was Lushthorpe's gobsmackingly massive Extra Deep Sea Rocket, fully 400 feet in height. At this distance, the craft looked somewhat like a gigantic stubby iron pencil the pointy end dangling just above the choppy ocean waters. At its top, where the eraser would be, so to speak, was a giant glass dome, secured with hefty ironwork, and penetrated in the middle by a cluster of four giant chimneys. The middle sections were festooned with a variety of protrusions, including rocket boosters, searchlights, Harpoon guns, torpedo tubes, remote manipulation arms and airlocks. In fact, everything one could imagine necessary for an extraplanetary mission. However, this rocket was pointing firmly downwards rather than to the stars. In a nutshell, she was, uh, if you'll pardon the phrase, well tooled up. Satisfied that all looked in order, Cuthbert finally relinquished his spot at the window. "'We will draw a polite veil over the improper melee that ensued in a bid to replace him.' Cuthbert was unaware of all this, as, beckoning Ellen to join him, he sought out the inventor himself, who was busying himself at a table covered with a motley assortment of charts and maps. "'Brighty-ho, Lushy!' boomed the first lord, as was generally his way. I think it's about time we filled everyone in on what this junket is all about. Lushthorpe conceded this with the barest of nods, and Cuthbert instructed a nearby orderly to get the attention of his fellow travellers. Reluctantly, they dragged themselves away from the windows and formed a loose group. The reporters amongst them stood poised with notepads and pencils. There was even the pop of a powder flash gun, as some eager beaver decided to record the moment. "'That's quite enough of that,' muttered Sir Grenville, as he straightened up his lean figure ready to address the ensemble. He made quite a picture, however, as, clad in a white laboratory coat, he faced the room, and all assembled could see that he was wearing large, steel-framed optics that made his eyes appear several times larger than normal. He ran a bony hand through his thinning, grey hair and (coughs) cleared his throat melodramatically. With his other hand, he pulled down the first of his large diagrams that was sprung on a coiling device in the ceiling. As he released the contraption, it promptly sprang right back up where it had come from, and two further attempts were necessary to finally get the scale drawing of the rocket to hold firm in its down position. This finally accomplished, he picked up an articulated pointing rod and gingerly tapped the diagram with some trepidation for fear it might recoil itself once again. Relieved that this did not happen, he finally felt ready to begin his briefing. <clears throat> My lord, ladies, gentlemen, and members of the press, welcome one and all to this inaugural launch of the Extra Deep Sea Rocket. At this point, he glanced around the room in a quite unnerving manner, given the apparent size of his eyes, and asked somewhat prematurely, Any questions at this point? Just bally, get on with it, snapped the first lord, whose veneer of rumbustious joviality was beginning to peel away as he steamed slightly in his full-dress uniform. Um, right, yes, indeed, muttered Lushthorpe, appearing slightly flustered now. He turned back to the chart and began indicating features with his stick in a seemingly entirely random sequence. Um, uh, the, the rocket? Um observation deck uh harpoons uh, uh no 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 that, uh, that that's here more tapping uh, retardation screws folded for lift off um w- uh, well, you know, lift down uh, as it were, or uh, well, whatever you get the drift um um uh, airlocks uh remote manipulator arms, he scanned the chart rapidly with his massive eyepieces. Uh, Um, no, can't quite locate that right now. Enough, bellowed the First Lord, who now looked fit to explode. We get the picture. It's a whacking great underwater rocket. Now step aside. Before Lushthorpe could comply, he shoved him out of the way and attempted to lower the second of the two diagrams. It in turn decided to copy its predecessor and reprise the whole uncoiling, recoiling hoo ha! Fortunately, another helpful orderly stepped in rather sharpish to hold the chart down and prevent the First Lord spontaneously combusting. At this point, Ellen was forced to stifle a laugh, and a ripple of titters went round the room. The First Lord, though, was failing to see the funny side. Pull yourself together! thundered Cuthbert, although it was somewhat unclear at whom this admonishment was aimed. Nevertheless, it had the desired effect, and the room settled down. The diagram the orderly was now clutching to prevent his untimely departure was rudimentary in composition. At the top was a drawing of the rocket. Directly below this was a crude dotted line that ran vertically downwards, to where a drawing of a large ship lay on what was clearly intended to be the seabed. As most of you are no doubt aware, began the First Lord, slowly regaining his composure, H.M.S. Hesperus, a Ministry of Finance fast bullion cruiser, recently disappeared in this very location with all hands lost. Now, if that were not bad enough, and I must remind the ladies and gentlemen of the press that all information on this is currently embargoed. She was on a top-secret mission at the time, and carrying... He paused melodramatically at this point. For reasons I cannot go into, fully one-tenth of our gold bullion reserve. A shocked gasp went round the room as the significance of this revelation began to sink in. At this point in the proceedings, the First Lord's attempts at severity were somewhat hampered by the airship inconveniently hitting a patch of turbulence. Yes, quite. I cannot begin to tell you... Whoa, whoa there! muttered the First Lord, as the swaying of the airship sent one and all first one way, and then the other. I cannot begin to walk in our easy sailor. He continued, as another burst of wobbling threatened to make him lose his footing. Whoa! Easy now. How's your father? He continued, but the turbulence gave no indication of loosening its shaking grip on the ship. Right then, steady as she goes. Uh, We're going to go and, uh, whoopsie, recover it with the lookout coming through Uh, uh, rocket. Breathing ended. And with that, he retired to his cabin to wait the cessation of elemental hostilities, leaving the orderly to distribute the typed notes that were intended to accompany the briefing in a somewhat shambolic fashion. Taking one of the sheets, Ellen found a wicker chair near one of the airship's portholes and devoured its contents voraciously. As the Air Corps' youngest ever flight captain, she'd been handed the role of representing the Corps at the first launch of the mighty sea rocket. Now, truth be told, there had been quite a childish squabble between the Air Corps and the Navy as to who should have primary jurisdiction over the invention. The Air Corps were adamant that rockets were very much their province. However, the Navy countered that since it was heading under the waves, it had a bugger all to do with a bunch of preening air jockeys. The air corps had not taken this too well, but a general reluctance on the part of any of the wing commanders to get their flying boots wet meant that they huffed their way out of the running and let the fish botherers get on with it. All this carry-on had meant that no one from the corps was very keen on having anything further to do with it, but nevertheless they felt they really ought to be represented. So the word went out for someone who might actually be up for such a jaunt. Ellen had to jump to the chance, and her excitement grew further now as she read on. It seems that much mystery surrounded the loss of the Hesperus. There were rumours of conspiracies and fevered speculation that led to a series of sea monster sightings by local fishermen and urchins and the like. There had even been some jittery talk of UFOs, but Ellen put it all down to over-eager imaginations. What was indisputable, though, was how seriously the government was taking the loss of its ship. Faster bullion cruisers were not your common or garden steamship. Well armed, and armoured, and faster than most in its class, one had never been lost before. And the fact that this one had been stuffed to the gunnels with filthy lucre made it all the more galling. It occurred to Ellen, however, that the document in front of her was written in such a way that it seemed entirely plausible the government might actually claim the sinking was deliberate and merely a ruse to test out the deep-sea rocket. Assuming, of course, the mission was actually completed successfully. Time for further speculation was cut short, as Ellen felt the bump that indicated that the airship was docked and it was time to meet the only real monster in this escapade, a preposterously huge undersea rocket. They exited the door of the blimp onto the blustery gantry of one of the colossal wrought iron towers that supported the bulk of the rocket ship. Ellen expected to emerge at the very top of the tower, but in fact the whole edifice was so monstrous that they were barely halfway up and would have to take an elevator to reach the summit. Needless to say, they were still a fair old way up in the air, and the wind was pretty brisk here. Ellen, Lushthorpe, and Cuthbert, the only ones with clearance to actually enter the contraption, were forced to cling on to hats and railings alike. They made their way with some caution onto the gantry, and the welcoming committee, which consisted of only two people, made their way equally cautiously to greet them. First of the two to reach them, dressed in a starched white homeland navy uniform and cap, with essential chin strap deployed, introduced herself as Commodore Agnitha Friedkin, captain of the EDSE and also R. Friedkin was clearly of Scandinavian descent and looked a robust figure not to be trifled with. Strong features and flamboyantly girly blonde hair made her also quite striking to look at. Salutes and handshakes were exchanged and attention then turned to the second of the two, a slightly weaselly looking figure in government issue gray trench coat. His ratty features made all the more stark by a pair of round spectacles that appeared slightly too small for his face. "'And who might you be?' inquired Cuthbert, sounding like he couldn't really care less. But he needed to know whether the man held a rank or not before offering a salute. Rhenish snook?' replied the man, in a dull and bored-sounding voice. "'Ministry of Finance?' Oh, a bean counter, muttered Cuthbert, not quite under his breath. Before Snook could take offence, however, a large baker light speaker horn, bolted to a nearby railing, took this moment to announce, Twelve! In quite unnecessarily loud tones. They all jumped, Snook included. Good Lord, what's that all about? exclaimed Cuthbert, quite taken aback. Lushthorpe stepped forward and began to usher the motley band towards a nearby elevator door. Uh, the countdown is well under way. I would suggest we make for the observation deck with all speed, and I'll begin our tour once we are launched. Without further ado, they all did as they were told, and the five of them crammed into a somewhat undersized lift car and began their cramped and rattly journey to the summit of the Iron Tower. During the ascent, Snook broke the awkward silence. I had been expecting the Prime Minister to be in attendance. Is he not amongst your company? Ha! (laughs) laughed Cuthbert loudly. For indeed, it was a bit of a sore point that the PM had decided to pull out at the last minute. Officially, he had claimed business of state, but Cuthbert speculated loudly and somewhat wildly, that the truth was that the PM was probably scared of water. Or maybe he was just annoyed he didn't have a suitable uniform to wear. Scandalously, the PM had never served in the forces. Either way, he'd cried off like a baby. It struck Ellen that despite an attempt at indifference, Snook seemed somewhat dismayed by this response. Halfway up in the elevator, they passed another large speaker horn that, with impeccable timing, announced, Eleven! They would have all jumped again, had they not been too tightly packed in to move. Blasted thing, spluttered Cuthbert, to no one in particular. By turns, they eventually arrived at the top of the steel latticework tower, and they would have been relieved to be free of the cramped compartment, had it not been for the dizzying visage that greeted them. Ahead, across several more gantries, was the impressive dome that topped the rocket. It comprised of large panes of curved glass, held in place by strips of riveted metal, and stood fully 30 feet high. Below this, the titanic cylinder of the rocket dropped away right down to the ocean waves, 400 or so feet below. The entire edifice seemed alive with activity, be it technicians scurrying here or there, or vents belching steam, or pipes trickling waste fluids of one sort or another. To top it all, the whole structure groaned and clanked in a quite unnerving way as it swayed to and fro in reaction to the stiff wind and the choppy waves below. Trying to take it all in, Ellen marvelled at how such a massive structure could be held aloft like this at all, and could only be in awe of the effort that must have been involved in its construction. Conversely, Cuthbert was making a beeline for the viewing dome, where he fancied he could detect the aroma of a luncheon being prepared. Snook looked as if he couldn't care less about any of it, and morosely brought up the rear as Lushthorpe and Friedkin led them finally off the rickety gantries and onto the rocket itself. By this point, the aggravatingly over-amplified announcements had boomed out ten and nine, oddly missed eight and gone straight on to herald the arrival of seven, Friedkin was now issuing commands with alacrity and aquanauts in wonderfully ornate uniforms that seemed to be half ahoy there sailor and half mission to the stars scurried to comply. The great glass and bronze airlock was sealed behind them and, in the midst of all this frantic activity, the guests were ushered towards a suite of rather incongruous-looking parlour furniture set up next to the massive central chimneys. You should be able to observe proceedings from here. I would advise sitting down for the launch itself, uh, but subsequent to that, we could take a walking tour of the rocket, informed Lushthorpe, rubbing his hands with glee at the prospect of his mighty ship finally being unleashed. Well, I wouldn't get yourself too lathered up, Lushy old boy, Cuthbert offered as he lowered his ample frame into an upholstered armchair. You are basically just sinking with style. (laughs) Ellen caught his wink, and quickly, for Lushthorpe looked to have taken the comment none too well, tried her best to distract him as she also took her seat. What are these chimneys for? she inquired, pouring on as much wide-eyed innocence as she could muster without giggling, whilst patting one hand on the nearest of the great tubes. Lushthorpe eyed the First Lord through his magnifying eyepieces, but thought better of retorting in the end, and turned to Ellen instead. Well now, uh, I was just coming on to that before I was so rudely interrupted. The first of the four chimneys is just that, a chimney, venting the fumes from the great steam turbines below us. Uh, Naturally, this one will be capped just before diving to prevent the ingress of the ocean. He paused for breath, spittle flecking his lips. The second and third tubes are what takes over to egress the smoke while submerged, and is a cunning device of my own invention. Six, blared out the overly eager countdown. Undisturbed by this, Lushthorpe went on to explain how the two tubes held a complicated system of compressed bladders, rather like the airbags in an airship, that filled up with smoke from the coal-fired engines. When one was filled, the system would, via an intricate series of cogs and pulleys and hatches and the like, uh, automatically switch to filling the other, and the first one would be sealed, and then released like a sort of balloon torpedo into the ocean to be recovered at the surface. The first troop would then be loaded with another empty gas bag, ready to go when its turn came around. Sounds somewhat overwrought to me," sniped Snook tersely, causing all others to look at him in surprise, having quite forgotten he was even there. "Really expensive, more like," guffawed the first lord, in a tone that would have happily graced the most bawdy of pantomimes. In a very slightly more serious tone, he inquired of Lushthorpe, What's the fourth one for, then? Oh, that, replied the professor wistfully. That's just to make it look symmetrical. Before any of them could consider this further, the bustle of the aquanauts attending dials, levers, and other assorted workstations rose to a new level. And the vociferous announcements barked out again, Five! Four, three. Oh, my word! exclaimed Ellen, with a mixture of giddy excitement and outright cold fear, gripping the arms of her chair tightly. All others not required to stand for the launch moved with great alacrity to park their posteriors. Two. Lordy! squeaked the first lord with some angst as. With a great cascade of smoke and sharp tongues of flame, the rocket boosters, strapped just below the dome, burst into life. It was as if a ring of giant Roman candles surrounding the entire deck had just been lit, showering great plumes of sparks down onto the dome above them. The great rocket could be felt pulling hard against its restraints, as it strained to plunge into the ocean. One! There was the briefest of pauses, and then... Lift off! bellowed the announcement, somewhat incorrectly. Thus commanded, the rocket was duly released, and with an unearthly moan, the entire craft began to plunge sickeningly downwards, like the enormous iron bullet it was. One and all felt their stomachs lurch violently upwards and a tremendous shudder shook them as the rocket hit the ocean but continued to plummet unabated. Ellen found herself unable to restrain a whoop of sheer delight. Their epic adventure to the seabed had begun. What will befall our intrepid aquanauts? Will their mission go to plan? Tune in next week for more slumber time stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Albion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Carroll. The part of Hildebrand's Dilemma Spaniels was played by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Zadigal. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www. TalesofNewAlbion.com, Or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production of Albion Radiophonic Corporation. Before any of them could consider this further. Now, before any of them could. could ugh. Now, before any of them could, could. No, 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 no.